Hello and welcome to the Tess English Teaching Podcast. My name is Jamie Tom. I'm an English teacher and author of Slow Teaching, Finding Calm, Clarity and Impact in the Classroom. Today's episode aims to make sense of educational research and provide practical guidance about what we should be doing in our classrooms at the start of the year. Research often strikes fear or frustration into teachers. There's so much out there, it's nearly impossible to wade through and make decisions about how it can influence our classroom practice. At times, approaching research has a touch of Matthew Arnold's Dover Beach about it, as we stand on the edge of a precipice and try to make sense of the various conflicting viewpoints. And we are here on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. Yet teachers and leaders are becoming more and more interested in research and how it can inform what happens in education. Like many listeners, however, I'm on a full teaching timetable. I'm busy. I'm stretched in every direction. What place is there for research in my classroom? How can it help streamline and simplify what we do, rather than burdening us with yet another sparkling new agenda? Importantly, how can we begin to decide what works and what doesn't work? With these burning questions, I was delighted that Robert McPherson and Carl Hendrick agreed to come on the show. Their excellent and hugely successful book, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, aims to help us confused classroom practitioners find some clarity in this research maze. This is one of my favourite educational reads, and one that I find myself coming back to again and again. Robin and Carl managed to persuade 15 educational experts to contribute to their book. Each chapter involves the script of interviews with two of those educational heavyweights in which they provide research-informed answers to questions posed by teachers. In doing so, they provide direction for teachers on a vast range of classroom concerns. In our conversation, we explore how teachers can make better use of research and what the research tells us about some of the aspects that will be at the forefront of our minds at the start of a new academic year. Motivation, feedback and behaviour management. I hope you find it helpful. Hi Carl and Robin, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show today. Thanks for having me. Right guys, we're going to go straight into it with a couple of sort of warm-up questions. And obviously, Robin, as the you know the first fellow Scot to come on the show, I'm going to have to start with you if you don't mind. So the first question is, who is your favourite literary character and why? Oh, God, you know, I really struggle with these kind of questions, like what's your favourite <laughs> song or film or whatever, because they just paralyse by choice. If I can go for two, I do have a, a, one that I would sort of edge it as the favourite. I love, um, as all Scots do, Wee Bertie in uh, the Alexander McCall Smith series, Scotland Street. Oh, superb choice. You get a terrific little character. Everybody but everybody knows his mum because we've all had that parent or always will have that parent. So how that, how that wee boy survives with the trials and tribulations he goes through and, and still turns out to be quite a nice, likeable kid is just <laughs> incredible. So just a great character that, that I think everyone responds to and that everybody knows a wee Bertie somewhere. But I think that my, my sort of longest standing love of a literary character, uh, I'm going to go with one. Well, it's probably fairly mainstream, but for Fury Petrovich from Crime and Punishment, and um, just because that was the book that uh, one of my English teachers, who was a, a great guy, uh, Mike McIntosh Reed, sort of challenged me in a way to, to read that book when I was about 16. And that was the first time I, I kind of really, I think, properly fell in love with, with great literature. 
and uh, it's, it's changed the way I kind of read and, and think about things ever since. And I always say to pupils that I teach Russian history to, if you really want to understand sort of the 19th century, just not just in Russia, but across Europe, you know, read that book. It's as good as anything you can get your hands on. Um, and you know, it's, it's a terrific psychological thriller. And, and Petrovich is this uh, fascinating character. We don't know too much about him, but, you know, he, he could wrap the case up very quickly if he wants to. But he's, he's all about trying to redeem Raskolnikov. Um, and it's just brilliant. And I love the fact that Columbo is also based on him as well. So uh, it shows you what a great character, an enduring character he is. So that's my, my choice. Superb. Yeah, a little bit cheeky there with the two choices there, Robin. But uh, because it was <laughs> such a Scottish example, I'll let you off for that. And that's definitely the second example. It's the most intellectual we've had so far. So great choices. Fantastic. Uh, right, Carl, that's a, that is a pretty difficult act to follow. Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting, Robin, something with Dostoevsky there, because... Um, Bakhtin said of Dostoevsky that he's the only writer worth reading because he's the only writer whose characters speak for themselves. That is, you can't detect any authorial intent. So when you're reading Dickens, you're always reading Dickens' voice. You're always hearing Dickens' voice. But when you're reading Dostoevsky, the characters are they're sort of disconnected from the author. And I think a lot of the literature that I love is probably sort of dominated by authorial intent. So maybe my favorite writer is Joyce. But when you when you think about great passages from, from, from Joyce, like The End of the Dead or Dubliners, it's always James Joyce talking. So the, the characters themselves are, you know, strong, but but, but but they don't have that same autonomy. So the, the one that comes to mind for me is um, a character from a book called Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, written in, I think it was written in the 80s. And I've got, I'm really obsessed with a, a period in the American West, um, sort of around the 1860s, uh, just on the cusp of America becoming uh, what we know today and the, the, the Wild West, just sort of a liminal space. And it, it, the novel is set in a period where there's a, group, a gang based on a real-life Glanton gang uh, along the Texas-Mexico border who are paid to essentially go and commit genocide on, on Native American Indians and they, they would get paid for scalps that they bring back. One of the members of that gang is a character called Judge Holden, who's a seven-foot-tall, completely hairless man, and he's extremely well-educated. He's extreme, he's, he kind of speaks in this Old Testament dialect and his whole thing is that war is the most natural state of man. And he, some of the greatest sort of passages I've read have been quotes from Judge Holden. I remember re, uh, Harold Bloom said it's the greatest American novel. He, he thinks it's as good as Moby Dick or anything else. And the judge in that novel is um, the most horrific, terrifying character I've ever read. Um, he commits the most heinous acts but he talks about them and justifies them in this very erudite way that kind of really gets under your skin. So he, he would be the character probably that comes to my mind the most. Brilliant answer. Thank you very much, Carl, for that. It's fascinating stuff. From both your answers, it's clear we're in the, sort of, in the hands of some intellectual heavyweights here on the show today. So, so thank you very much for them. Really, really interesting. Before we sort of start to talk a little bit more specifically about your, you know, your excellent book, I think it might help listeners if you just provide a little bit of context about, you know, your, your education experience so far. And then what I'm really interested in is where did this sort of passion and interest in educational research that you both have, where did that kind of stem from? Uh, who do you want to go first? Oh, well, we'll keep with the Scottish first, obviously, Robin. Set the tone. 
<laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, well, I've been teaching for it's my 17th year in teaching and I'm at my fourth school. So uh, I started off in Edinburgh and then went to Dubai and then in England, now back up in, in Scotland uh, at Dollar Academy. So uh, history teacher by trade, so that's why I studied at a university. Um, and when I, I, in my first job and certainly first few years in, in teaching, I, sort of, I looked at different things and I was involved in a lot of different stuff. So I did a lot of sports coaching, but I was interested in the, the pastoral side as well. I did a lot of boarding house stuff, um, but I sort of settled on wanting to be a head of department. So I think when uh, I took that on, I probably paid more attention to teaching and learning broadly rather than just what was going on in my own classroom or what was going on in other classrooms and made more of a conscious effort to, to go and see other people teach and to try and, and read a bit more. But it wasn't really until I think I, I went to Wellington College in Berkshire, which is where Carl and I worked together, that I really started paying serious attention to educational research because I think that was just the, the, the climate at the time. You know, Anthony Selden... Uh, was the head and you know he, he encourages to read and to think and to engage the festival of education was just a brilliant thing to open up me to everything that was going on and some of the, the deep-seated debates in education that I was only sort of passingly aware of um, and when Carl joined the school we just started chatting about it and we, we got on and, and I think um, from there that interest in, in research because currently you know, Carl's the one who really knows the research I, I've been more involved in professional learning and development so that's why I think we, we work quite well together because we sort of complement what each other knows so it was just spending time we both ended up doing content directing for the festival uh, talking about big issues um, and you know from then it became apparent to me just how powerful being research informed can be as a teacher but also as a whole school um, and from that, it, it's really snowballed. And I, I think teachers are so better connected and much more aware and interested in education research, certainly the last five years, but possibly the last decade. And I think I'm, I'm just a, a typical example of that, you know, nothing special. But um, now I'm just going to read avidly and I, I find it fascinating. And I probably read as many books on education as I do or of sort of fiction and nonfiction combined, which is, is quite a big shift in the way I, I, I read in, in the last five or six years. So it's something that I just find endlessly fascinating and, and constantly looking at the craft and the science of teaching and, and how we learn. Um, and the more I know about it, the more I want to know about it. And so that's the, 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 the love of that is what I'm trying to inculcate in other teachers in the same way that I try and inculcate a love of history in the pupils that I teach. Thank you for that, Robin. I think it's it's definitely one of the things that resonates from, from the book, that sense of an intellectual curiosity, isn't it, that mm. you continue to drive and move forward with. Um, so that's fascinating. Thank you for that. Carl? Uh, so I started teaching about, about 12 years ago. I was planning on writing and, and moving to America and I did a degree in in uh, literature and then a master's degree and then I thought how much longer can I get away with this not you know, having a, a proper job so I speculatively applied to King's did PGCE managed to blag my way in there and I was put on a placement in a, um, a school inner city school in, in state school in London and I never thought I would be a teacher but just something happened when I was talking to these kids about Shakespeare or poetry and I wasn't very good really when, when I think about it um, but there was enough there to make me think well, this is this is incredible I, I would say like a lot of teachers the first maybe three or four years the sort of the, the zeitgeist at the time was that teachers shouldn't be talking that kids should really discover things for themselves um, that you should make your lessons engaging if kids misbehave in your lesson it's because you, the teacher hasn't had enough engagement with the kids so a lot of planning, a lot of putting stuff in envelopes, 
um, a lot of a lot of nonsense, quite frankly. And then I thought I, I'd like to learn more about this, so I started to do a, a PhD at King's. That's about eight years ago, and started to read more and become interested in research and methodology. Then I moved to Wellington after about six years working in that school, and and like Robin said, I just met, you know, a lot of just incredible people, a lot of smart people like Robin, and really challenged my thinking. And then I think the thing that really changed everything for me was um, social media, in particular Twitter, and coming across, um, you know, meeting people in the festival like Tom, or Daisy, and, and uh, Martin, and I can remember being introduced to arguments that I'd never heard before. Um, and a lot of those arguments were coming from the area of, of cognitive psychology, which, I, again, was nothing I'd, I'd ever encountered. So I started to read... Uh, an awful lot about cognitive psychology and found it fascinating and found it also quite frustrating that I'd never heard of any of it and how useful it is for teachers. Um, and so started to write some blogs, started to connect with different people. And then through the festival as well, we would sort of meet a lot of these people. And yeah, and that's, that's and I'm still here at Wellington. Superb. Thank you, Carl. It's quite exciting listening to both your, you know, your experiences and how it's progressed over a, over a period of time to be something that I think for both of you has had a huge impact on the teaching profession in general. So I'd like to touch in a little bit on that now. So obviously, you, you know, your excellent book, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom, came out last year. And I think it's fair to say that it's been a, a huge success. It's one of personally my favourite educational reads. And I know, you know, lots of my colleagues and people online have, have taken a huge amount from it. In terms of, you know, helping to navigate what really is quite a, a complex and overwhelming world of educational research. So I'm wondering if, if you could tell us a little bit about what your aim for the book was and how you went about putting together the book. Uh, well, I think the, the title pretty much captures why we we wanted to put it together. I mean, Carl and I have been talking an awful lot about lots of different things that, that bothered us. And you know, we were surrounded by all this fascinating research and, and exposure to it. But the question that was always in our minds was, you know, what does that actually look like in a classroom? So if I go and read something about, say, cognitive psychology, how does that work in period three on a Wednesday in November with a bunch of 13-year-olds? You know, it needs to transfer from being this kind of abstract thing into a, a practical thing in a lesson plan. Uh, so we, we'd been debating that for a long time and we'd been talking about wanting to write a book. You know, Carl talked about wanting to write before he went into teaching and I had the same sort of ambition as well. So I, I started doing you know, sort of textbooks for Cambridge University Press, but I really wanted to write something that was just a bit more substantial and, and about teaching. So we were going to write the whole thing ourselves, but it was Carl's idea and said, well, do you know, what? We, we have access to all these incredible people who really know their stuff. So why don't we perhaps get them to collaborate on it and, and think of a format that we can make the most of their expertise? So that's where we came up with this idea of, well, tell, we've got 10 areas we want to cover and we can get a couple of people in on, on each uh, topic. And then let's just fire them questions that we will collect from, from teachers because we're working in a, a teaching school alliance. We thought, well, well, let's get together some focus groups. Let's contact people. Let's throw it on Twitter. Um, and we got so many questions in that the, the tricky bit was just aggregating it all and, and trying to find you know, the, the questions that perhaps would resonate most widely. And we did very little to change the questions. Just sometimes we took them from being really quite narrow to specific and just opened them out a little bit so they'd have a, a wider relevance. Um, and then we started contacting people to see if they wanted to be involved. And, and very quickly they responded to it. I don't think we had anybody at all say no. 
And by the time we got a, a few on board, then it made it sort of easier to get in touch with people that we didn't actually know that well, like people like Paul Kirshner and, and Dylan Williams, so on, who said, absolutely, we, we'd love to be away. If those guys are in, then, then we're in too. So it just kind of started snowballing, and we thought, well, this, this is fantastic. So the hard work was actually on the organization of it. But once we had the material together, we spent three weeks meeting every day uh, you know, in, in July. So we had holiday time, we had a bit of breathing space. And we just said, right, let's meet at 11 in the morning, see what we've done from the day before, think what we need to do today, then meet up again tomorrow and just keep rolling it like that. Um, so it, it came together very quickly. It was probably about four or five months in getting the material together. And then once we had it, uh, we were able to, to turn it around quite quickly and then we pass it on to, to John Katz, who, who did the rest. So it, in that short space of time, uh, I, I think Carl will probably agree with this, it's the most I've learned about education in my whole career, definitely. You know, it was such a privilege to be able to talk to these people. And, you know, what's in the, uh, the transcripts really is a, a very edited format. When we talked to Paul Kirshner and said to him, um, you know, we only need about 20, 30 minutes of your time. And he said, don't be ridiculous with the questions you sent me. I need at least three hours. So, <laughs> so what, what you get from Paul is, is very much a crunched down version of, of what he told us. And, and we were able to sort of chat to people about other things or, or that sort of cropped up that didn't make it into the final cut. So it, it was absolutely brilliant and we learned a huge amount from it and it genuinely was a, a labour of love and I think the final product does reflect a, a book that's, that's better for having a sort of collective approach rather than just the two of us saying what we think. Mm. Absolutely, because I think then what resonates from it as well is that intellectual humility, isn't it? It's the idea that all these people are deeply passionate about education and deeply passionate about these these issues that they are particular, but there's nothing dogmatic about it. It's the idea that they're wrestling with these issues and trying to find a sense of clarity with it in as much as we are in our own classrooms. And I think as, as a reader, that that sense of a journey throughout the whole process is, is incredibly powerful, refreshing and, and has a huge impact. Mm. Well, that was it. We wanted it to be very readable because one of our, our bugbears was that, you know, if you're trying to read heavyweight academic research, finding time to do it is, is a difficulty for mm. every teacher. But actually, you know, being literate and being able to speak the language of research is not a common skill set for teachers. It's not really the way we're trained and it's not what we do in our day jobs. Mm. So we had to make it um, a bit more sort of pulp fiction, I suppose, in that it needed to be conversational. It, it needed to be exposing people to ideas that we've been exposed to, but in a way that made them want to turn the next page. And, and we like the, the question answer format because you can read a couple of questions and then put it down and come back to it later on. You know, it's not like, all right, there's there's 50 more pages to the end of the chapter. I'm going to wade through this because it's 11 o'clock at night. You know, people could, people have read it in all sorts of different ways. Um, and that's great. You know, we wanted it to, to make it straightforward for teachers because we're not in the business of giving them any extra work or burdening them in any sort of a way so that's what we wanted it to be absolutely brilliant thank you for that Carl. the thing about the book is we could probably spend about 13 hours on this call because it covers everything you know it encompasses such a, a wide range of educational focuses you've got technology in the classroom you've got feedback you've got behavior there's there's a huge amount in there so what I wanted to think about really is, is focusing on on three areas. And I guess they're the areas that, you know, as, as people get ready to the call of school, as we start to hear it again. And I know in Scotland, you're, you're back on Monday, Robin, I think, isn't it? So Yeah, and then school's back already. Glasgow are back oh. last week, so yeah. <laughs> Busy up here. So yeah, so basically what I want to think about is, is three areas. The first of all is about motivation and how we can kind of motivate our students as we come back 
in you know August September. The second is about you know what does the research tell us about behaviour management. That's certainly at the forefront of my mind when I'm I'm starting with new classes in the classroom. The third, because this is a you know this is this is a show predominantly for English teachers and we do have the hardest job there is in terms of marking and feedback. I want to talk a little bit about that. So the first question I guess is is about motivation because it's obviously a hugely powerful thing and important thing in the classroom because without it you know we can visibly lose young people in front of us. And um, so I wonder if you could help us with a, a little bit about what the research tells us about how to motivate our students in the year to come? Well, um, I think the the research on motivation is it's quite a varied field. Um, you, I mean, there are sort of seminal papers to look at. Um, there's a paper by Zimmerman from 1989 about uh, self-regulation, and he uh, um, built on the work of Bandura, which is a very important field. And one of the things that he argues for, which is sort of, then developed by others is that motivation is very counterintuitive and that it the the, the causal arrow is very often the, the wrong way around so there there is a there is a the sense that you kind of motivate students first um, and then they they produce the work but there is a lot of evidence that says that you know learning requires motivation but motivation doesn't not necessarily lead to learning uh, i think one of the books that was the most influential on me was Graham Nussel's book, The Hidden Lives of Learners, where he did some amazing research where he would uh, mic up students in a lesson and then look to see what they were talking about. And his research found that students can be the most busiest and involved with material that they, that they already know. Uh, in the classrooms that he looked at, I think he found that about the student is already aware of 50% of what the teacher is teaching. So it can, it can look and or appear that kids are very engaged and motivated and learning, uh, but they're actually not learning anything at all. I think another area that's worth looking at is the work of Kirshner, Sweller and Clark, uh, particularly the, the idea of uh, minimally guided instruction. And I think now my view on this is that if you, if you almost do the, you know, the opposite of what you want to end up doing, so the, 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 the steps that you take towards a particular outcome probably need to look very different than the outcome itself. So independent learning is something that you hear a lot. It's a phrase that a lot of schools talk about. And you know, most people in education would have the aim of equipping students in such a way as at the end of the day they're able to, to work independently. But independent learning is probably a very bad way to create independent learners. Uh, when you take into account cognitive architecture, when you when you think about the limitations of working memory and cognitive load. So I think students feel probably most motivated when they achieve something. And what that means is in the very early stages is getting students to have that sense of mastery over a particular um, task. We, you know, the evidence is pretty clear on this. The way to do that is to provide very scaffolded instruction with lots of worked examples, with lots of uh, very explicit examples of success. And, you know, to, get, to give an example in, in English, I was, I can remember being, you know, when I started as an English teacher, I was told that, you know, get out of the way, let kids talk. And I, I remember kids were sort of talking in groups. And they were trying to create something um, working towards a piece of writing and they just didn't ha they just didn't know enough at all so they were sort of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic to a certain extent and then they would write something and you know it, it wouldn't be very good but if you provide very sort of clear instruction 
on how to say write a paragraph. So if you if you want students to write an introductory paragraph to an essay, if you start off by taking their ideas but giving them um, very clear instruction on what that looks like, maybe look at some examples of really good writing, take that apart with them, and then give them opportunities to do a little bit of writing and then very sort of clear feedback on that. You often find that when once students get a kind of get a sense of how to do that, they're then motivated and they then can apply that sense to to, to run the rest of, of the essay. So I would say, in a nutshell, we've kind of got the arrow pointed the wrong way around. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is that it's an ach- it's achievement that leads to motivation and not the other way around. I think it's, it's, it's really interesting because young people are quite savvy, aren't they? And they can sense when we're trying to motivate them with speeches and posters and it all becomes very self-conscious, that form of motivation. You can sense as a teacher when students have grappled with something, when they've overcome some difficulties, when they've produced something meaningful is when they really start to kind of buy into the whole process. So I wonder where you where you stand with, you know, the whole growth mindset aspect. Where, where do you stand on that as a form of motivation? Uh, just that it comes with a massive health mm. warning, um, essentially. It's the current craze at the moment. And uh, there are so many consultants out there that are charging you lots of money to come in and do assemblies or give you posters or to do inset days and, and be inspirational as if they can sort of parachute into a school, give everyone a growth mindset pill and disappear mm. off and suddenly we'll have you know, intrinsically motivated learners. And it doesn't work like that. Um, you know, to have pupils who are intrinsically motivated, independent learners, you know, that, that's the end game. And it's something that builds up over a number of years. And I do think that you know, Carol Dweck's book is, is legendary for actually being one of the least read books in education. It's certainly an inverse proportion to the number of people that claim to be experts on it. So that's why I think it comes with such a huge health warning. It's not to say that a growth mindset doesn't exist. It's just that you can't get pupils to have it by putting up a display. And I think instead you've got to think about the learning process over a number of years and giving what is a a high level of stimulation and challenge and, and much better to look at the Bjork's work on desirable difficulties. So if you've got pupils that, that really are being being pushed and, and, and challenged in such a way that they become more interested in what they're doing, you're more likely to build intrinsic learners. I think there's a great chapter that my professional learning reading group looked at last year um, in uh, Firpin Smith's book, um, Psychology in the Classroom. Um, and we had a look at that. And you know, that chapter, I think it's got one reference to growth mindset and it's a passing one. Other than that, um, it looks at motivation from sort of every other angle and covers the research very well. So I can strongly recommend that book. I think it's terrific. Um, and it's also another thing to watch out for is just thinking, right, we need intrinsically motivated learners. That's the game. And we don't want extrinsically motivated learners. Well, we don't, but there's a complex interplay between the two. And I think Nick Rose talks about it really well in our book. Um, you know, saying sometimes extrinsic motivators are fine and, and they work okay. It's just that you don't want the balance of it to be on extrinsic. Um, and I think as well, to actually, well, I think my own experience as a learner, but also those lessons where I've come out and thought that went better than I could ever hope for. It's just those ones where you really know your subject incredibly well and you introduce students to this wonderful area that you think is fascinating, you're passionate about it. You know, that gets them motivated as much as anything else. Um, so you know, the, the actual the magic of teaching is the little bit that's not really covered in the research necessarily, although there, there's a lot of talk about you know, authenticity in teaching, that helps too. Um, so I, I would say to anyone who's out there who's kind of spending time in growth mindset or being beaten over the head with growth mindset is that it's far too reductive. 
Um, and I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of it's definitely not an intervention it's the outcome and, and Carl's absolutely right to say the causal arrow is the wrong way around yeah I, I, just on that I think that's absolutely spot on the, the thing about Dweck's work is you know she's done you know 30 almost 40 years of research on this and you know it's 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 well done research and she's been very open about criticisms of her work but one of the problems with growth mindset is nearly all of the interventions or studies on the interventions tend to come up with no statistical uh, significance or null effect. So there may well be a disposition called growth mindset, but any attempts to to um, augment that in students, uh, you know, hasn't really worked very well when done at scale. So there was the huge study that um, the EF did a couple of years ago, changing mindsets, which found that there was you know very little impact. On students, um, so I, I think growth mindset it might be more of a philosophy than an intervention, um, and I think that it, Robin's right. There's there's the, the problem with education research is you get this sort of Chinese whisper effect where you get good research done and then by the time it filters down into the classroom, it's a pale imitation of its of its former self. And growth mindset is one of the most sort of prominent examples of that. And I will always think about that story about um, Niels Bohr, uh, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, when a journalist went to his house to interview him. And as he was going into his house, he saw a, a horseshoe over the door. And he said, uh, you know, what's that all about? You're, you're, you're you know, you're an eminent man of science. What, why have you got a lucky horseshoe over your door? And Niels Bohr said, of course, I don't believe in it, but I hear that it works whether you believe in it or not. And I think a lot of schools have this boar's horseshoe in their schools. They, you know, the schools are festooned with motivational posters and growth mindset assemblies and so on and so forth. And no one really thinks that it works, but they hear that it works whether you believe in it or not. And so I think the growth mindset is, you know, it's a useful concept to have as a kind of a, a philosophical belief or, or, or a value that a school might have. But in terms of specific interventions, and you know, the big thing about growth mindset is it's, it's probably domain specific. The idea that you can, you can give an assembly to kids about the plasticity of the brain, it's all useful stuff, but then they'll go into a lesson and in, in English they, may, they might have a very kind of incremental mindset, they might have a very growth mindset, but then they go into maths and they have a completely different growth mindset. And what's the thing that would change that? It's probably more explicit instruction on maths and how to do it. Probably not thinking about, um, as I say, the plasticity of the brain. For us as teachers, that's really quite empowering because it, it gives us a sense of control. Whereas all the, the growth mindsets, I think partly as a, a classroom teacher can be quite frustrating because it's not tangible and it's not tangible for the young people either. But is, as you say, if we scaffold, if we give our students opportunity to get better and get more skilled at something. And I, I really like that idea, Roman, about what we can do as classroom teachers in terms of our, our passion for our subject that has far more a tangible outcome in terms of motivating our students. I think it's really, really interesting. Mm. I feel for, for teachers as well, because we're guilty of this in Scotland as well as England, we've got a system that at the end of it, you've got two, three years that's all about exams and grades and that's what determines mm. your future. And, and those things are, are largely extrinsic motivators. So pupils end up at the end of our system saying you know just tell me the answer what's in the syllabus you know and doing past papers all the time and, and that's a shame it's quite hard to inculcate a, a genuine love of learning when that's maybe what, what pupils are, are striving for is just the letter grade that comes at the end so they can get a promotion onto the next thing so that's where we're, we're kind of fighting against that all the time and, and I, I don't see us 
changing things in a big mm-hmm. way through something like growth mindset when we're still working within those parameters. Yeah. That sounds very cynical. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I think the important thing is the the optimism and the skill of, of conversations we're having like this are really important because it gets teachers thinking about, well, actually, what can I take ownership over personally in my own classrooms to sort of keep motivating, pushing students forward? Yeah. So I think it's really important and interesting. Fantastic. Thank you very much for those thoughts. They're really interesting. Um, okay, I guess one of the things that intimidates and, and slightly terrifies me always about starting a new year is, is the fact you're facing up to 100 new students sitting in front of you and I think you know there's always that pressure isn't it that from August September you've got to set the behavioral parameters you've got to get on top of behavior straight away that you know the, the lion pack mentality that that if you don't they'll be ripping you apart by Christmas so I wonder from your you know your conversations with the experts and your own experience what should teachers be doing from the start of the year to build all these positive relationships we're talking about that can help motivate them them further and, and set the parameters for behaviour well, I guess, in their classrooms? Uh, the, the bit I would recommend everyone to have a look at is, the we, we talk about a lot in our book, um, is Tom Bennett's report that he did, uh, I think it was released about a year, year and a half ago, something like that, for the, the DV on behaviour. And there's a, a brilliant diagram uh, quite early on, uh, page seven, I think in front of me, uh, which just points out the eight things that are the commonly found features of the most successful schools. So it's visible leaders, it's detailed expectations, it's consistent practices, staff engagement, attention to detail, clarity of culture, high staff support, and the idea that, that all students matter. And I think, well, when you think about what pe- young people respond to, is that they've got a keen sense of injustice and they don't like inconsistency. So if you can make it absolutely clear early on what your expectations are and what kind of the rules of your classroom are, then they know where they stand and then you just have to be consistent about enforcing that so you don't treat one child differently to the other because they'll pick up on that straight away. So it's really about holding quite a high line early on and then maintaining that line throughout, but at the same time being a, a good human being to them. You know, there's a, a, the usual debate that's kicked off, um, partly as a, something that was, was mentioned in our book as well, with Jill Berry talking about it on Twitter this week, where people are saying you know, this age-old advice, you shouldn't smile before Christmas with the new class, is, is just nonsense. It's not how you build relationships with pupils. But actually, they will respect you if you are firm and, you, and they know that in your classroom, things get done. Um, and that actually they don't go in with a sense of fear because somebody might do something to them that the teacher won't be able to pick up on or control. So that's it. It's your classroom. Absolutely. You, you get to set the rules. You can by all means chat to pupils about what they respond to in terms of rules. And if you want to go down that route, fine. Personally, I, I don't really. Um, but I think you've got to your first lesson, you've got to say to them, look, th- this is the standard of behavior that I expect. And whatever systems you put in place or whatever routines that you have, um, absolutely fine but as long as they're consistent and they're repeated then good behavior will become something that's the culture of your classroom and and they will learn that routine and, and if things are going badly in the first term especially if you're a new teacher don't worry about it it always gets better as the year goes on as long as you stick to your guns and keep those routines you can always ditch one if it's definitely not working or causing problems um, but persist I think is the, the best advice I can give. I think it's, there's two things on this kids respect teachers who create an environment in which they can learn and in which they feel safe. And, you know, as an English teacher, I think that if you, um, if you, if, if, if kids feel that you can offer them something that will make them see this subject in a way they've never seen before, then they will respond to that. There's very, very few kids 
hospital will not respond to that. I always think about one particular teacher I had. Most teachers I had were not very good. They, a lot of them had one of those two things, but rarely they had both of them. So some teachers would have you know, very, very good, strong behavior management, but they were just boring. And ultimately, most of the class, they behaved, but they sort of tuned out. Other teachers were quite interesting, but they had no behavior management. And although the kids were engaged, again, they weren't learning anything. But I had one teacher who taught me classics in my final year. And I remember he just sort of, he was an old guy, and he sort of came into the classroom and, and, and talked about um, the Odyssey. And he he was so passionate about that book and so passionate about literature that um, it, it was just infectious. And, you know, after a while, he didn't even need to bother with much behavior management because we were just hanging on his every word. Um, so I think um, Robin is spot on. Talmud, to me, is the definitive source of all things on behavior. But I think as, as, as an English teacher, I would say if you're extremely knowledgeable about the text that you're teaching and you can talk about that and model what that looks like, it's a very powerful thing for students and most kids respond to that. I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really helpful answer. Thank you. I think we've got a combination there of sort of really practical uh, guidance and advice about how to make the most of the, the start in terms of, you know, inevitably it has to be there, sanctions have to be there, etc. And balancing that with, you know, your own joy and passion and excitement and enthusiasm for the subject is, is what's going to set up that year particularly well, I think. If I can throw in one more to the mix there, just how important it is that school leaders prioritise behaviour and model that and lead from the front because if you've got a, a senior management team or leadership team that are, are not cutting it um, and, and not making sure that discipline is, is really effective within the school then it's very hard as a teacher to have a classroom that's going to work because you might be the only one enforcing a rule that nobody else is and take your children come into your classroom and and they won't see the consistency so when you try to get things right they probably won't respond that well so it's vital that, that school leaders actually respond to this and do something about it. And, and that's where I feel for a lot of teachers we see um, who are, are sending us messages or talking on Twitter saying they're, they're not being supported in actually upholding school policies, which is crazy. Uh, you know, and that's the, the biggest problem. The schools that are getting it wrong, and we're talking about probably one in eight schools across the UK, it's mostly down to leaders not actually having a clear vision for standards of behaviour and not backing up teachers when they have problems. So if we get right it will it will be better definitely alongside i think it's a really important point it's transparency as well isn't it yeah there's still that sense of classroom teachers not not wanting to be as open in dialogue about the behavior of their students as they are about feedback marking but it's just one side of teaching and i think the more we're open about it and say listen i'm really struggling with so and so can you help me out with that there's less of a sense of judgment about it yeah. i think we have to be open if leaders aren't helping we have to pester them I think ultimately and say, I really need support in here because it's just, as I say, one part of, of teaching. Mm -hmm. Great stuff. It's really helpful. Thank you for that. The last thing I'd like to talk about is the one that, again, particularly for me as an English teacher, um, marking and feedback is something I've, I've, I've always struggled with, partly because for English teachers, there's, there's such rich potential. And I know the two separate things, and we'll, we'll no doubt talk a little bit about that, but there's rich potential in marking as an English teacher. You can literally, you know, collapse in a red pile because the temptation is to pick up everything and, and look at everything. And one of the things I found really interesting about your book is, is Dylan Williams said that really teachers should be spending twice as much time on planning as they are on marking. But I don't think that we've really got that balance 
right. And I wonder what you know what advice you might offer about feedback for people in the in the year to come. Yeah, um, Dylan's model that he, he gave in the book is probably the most popular thing that mm. has come out of the, the whole thing. So. It talks about four quarters marking with the idea that the teacher should only mark in detail one quarter, which is interesting in its own right, because a lot of people are saying, let's throw marking out, let's do no marking and so on. But there's still a role for it. There's still one quarter that should be rigorously forensically marked. Another quarter should be skim marked. And then the other 50 percent of the marking, the other two quarters should really be about pupils actually looking at their own work and self-evaluating and then looking at a peer assessment. So what it creates is a, a very diet of feedback, which is very effective. I think people assume that marking is feedback in its entirety. I've, I've got that wrong. Marking is a, a small subset of all feedback. It's just one way in which you can convey to pupils how they are doing. And even in that, we can get it very wrong. So in other words, we're, we're looking to improve, again, probably the most popular line from the book that's been quoted most frequently on Twitter is the idea that the marking uh, or feedback the aim of feedback is to try to improve the pupil, not the piece of work. Uh, and sometimes we're getting that balance wrong as well, which often comes from working in an exam culture where we're you know, using these rubrics and mark schemes that say this is how to grade the work. This is what band it goes into. So in that sense, we're grading the work rather than actually helping the pupil to learn. So those are some things to, to start having a look at. Personally, I found it the hardest thing to change about my practice. And I've, I've probably taken three or four years to actually make the transition. That, that's how long it's been as a battle for me. Because I used to love line-by-line -line forensic marking. I'm, I'm one of these weird people that I like marking, I like ironing, I like hoovering, you know, kind of <laughs> all those tragic tasks that you're not meant to enjoy. Uh, I quite like it. You know, if I've got a huge pile of marking, then, uh, you know, at the weekend, for most people that, that keeps them wicked, I just go off to a cafe somewhere and I like doing it. I blitz through and have a couple of coffees and, and feel like I'm a good human being. And when I started teaching, I just had this thing where I said to all my pupils that, you know, if, if you get your work into me on time, you will get it back to the next lesson um, and it will be properly done. So I will turn it around very quickly for you and it will show you that I value your work and I respect you as a pupil. And I thought that that's what kind of gives me my my mark of respect as a teacher from, from the kids. And then you know, as an examiner as well, I've, I've examined for the SQA and for NXL and IB. And that sort of you know, gets you in that habit of being a, a good, efficient marker and very familiar with all the grade bands and all the rest of it. But, you know, when I started reading research on it and realizing that all that time and effort I was putting in was actually not as productive as I thought it was, it seemed very counterintuitive to me. So I've gradually walked away from it and made much more use of self-assessment, peer assessment and whole class feedback. And I feel so much better because I can recognize that the impact is, is landing much more effectively. It's more live feedback. It's in-class feedback, which is a lot better. Uh, we spend a lot more time in, in my lessons anyway working on the pupil work so that they can actually extract something meaningful from the feedback and, and act on it. And again, this is all the stuff that Dylan was saying. Um, and, and Carl and I debated this you know, when, when we first met. You know, he was kind of telling me that the, the sort of marking I was doing wasn't efficient or effective. And I, I was like, how dare you say that to me? Uh, I'm, I'm willing to put my hands up and say that no, I was wrong on that one. And, and it was very hard for me to, to get away from something that had been the hallmark of, of more than the first decade of, of my work in teaching. That now, I, although I still you know, will do that forensic marking, I do think my feedback has got a lot better from much more of it being in class. We spend more time in class on, on the work that people have done and looking at issues that arise from it and, and finding different ways to explore it rather than just handing it back so that people can read a bit of work and shove it in a folder and forget about it. Yeah, I think um, in an age of accountability, the, the, the low-hanging fruit is marking and it's a way for 
and it has been a way for school leadership to feel as if they're somehow um, monitoring good teaching. And of course, it's um, one of the least effective ways of, of, of monitoring, well, rather learning. Um, um, I think Bjork's work uh, is really interesting there where he makes a distinction between learning and performance. And one thing I noticed with this is that, you know, students, they, 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 they like to have work marked and have a grade on it, despite the fact that very often they learn absolutely nothing from it. Mm-hmm. And if you, for, say, uh, go back to me as an English teacher, if, if, if I, um, you know, for a long time I was marking sets of work and I was, you know, pointing out the errors in it, which is really the thing that students are, are often looking for. Um, I think it was Douglas Reeves who said that that kind of thing is uh, less of a medical and more of a post-mortem. And so I started to think, well, what would actually help them? Well, it's probably getting them to a space that is, like all learning, is relatively uncomfortable. And so one of the things that I found particularly effective is just building on what, what Robin is saying is if, if you get a class to write an essay, let's say they write a five paragraph essay on Macbeth. If you hand it back to and, you know, do something like photocopy the best three out of the class and hand those back to the class and then ask them, first of all, what's really effective about these ones that are very good and don't, not, not give a grade on anything. And then secondly, ask them to reflect on their own work and think about what elements of what they've written could be improved based on that. And we know there's an extensive research on the worked example effect in mathematics. Um, and I think that... If you get a class to do that very often, they don't like doing that. They, 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 what, what, you know, they'd much rather you, say, grade it as a C and then write things that are completely um, useless to them. So you might say something like, well, you need to use paragraphs better. Or you need to structure your essay better or vocabulary needs to be improved or can you add a little bit of more context into all of those things are things that if they knew how to do them in the first place, they would have done them. So there's a battle on two fronts. One is to change the culture of teaching and leadership in schools. And then secondly is with students themselves. Because as I say, they, they really, they don't like that. They don't, you know, they don't like doing things that are ultimately better for them in the long run. It's fascinating. Again, there's a line in your book that I think it's feedback should be more of a mirror than a painted picture. Yeah. Yeah, that was that, that was uh, I nicked that from my uh, head of the department here at Wellington. It's brilliant, which I thought was just a, a brilliant line. Feedback is only useful to the extent to which students do something with it, and so if if they are handed back something that makes them reflect and really seriously think about the practice and what they're doing, then it's more like a mirror as opposed to, as I say, a, a, a sort of completed painting. Absolutely. So there's that recurring theme you've got in the interviews on the, the chapter about, about students wanting feedback and students desiring it. And there's that awful sense at the moment, I think, in my own experience, a lot of colleagues experience that, that students are expecting streams of red pen. Mm. And then that somehow means something when ultimately it's a lot of it's superfluous. And a lot of it, as you said, is, is things if they could have done, they would have done already. So it's all really helpful ideas, I think, for us as teachers, you've mentioned to, to give us a little bit more control over the process and make it more meaningful so thank you for that my last question that i want to put to you today your, your book ends with a really interesting chapter that is an amalgamation of all the research and some ways in which you think teachers should move forward in terms of their own teaching in the classroom so i wonder if i could ask you just maybe for a couple of things each about what you think as teachers we should be focusing on doing for the next year that will hopefully have a really positive outcome for our students i would say that 
the, the vast majority of education research is of very little use to teachers. Um, a, a lot of it has very little practical application in the classroom, and a lot of it, you know, while worthwhile and kind of interesting, uh, isn't anything to do with what happens in the classroom. So I think I would be really focusing in on key things that ha- make a demonstrable impact in the classroom. I, I, I personally don't think teachers need to be doing research. I don't think they need to be even reading a significant amount of research. I think they need to be reading areas where there's a kind of a converge, an independent convergence and looking at things like Rosenstein's principles of instruction, for example, or looking at the Dunlosky study from a couple of years ago on uh, study skills. Uh, things like that are, uh, the Deans for Impact have got a document about the science of learning, which is hugely, hugely useful. And I think teachers should be looking at those things where there's a, there's a sense of consensus about particular modes of learning. Um, you know, you can read kind of broadly theoretical things, which a lot of education research or the tradition of education research is based on. A lot of them are based on stuff like Piaget and, and, and other things. And, you know, while they're interesting, a lot of them have limited application to the classroom. So I, I would be encouraging teachers to look at particular summaries that you can read in sort of 10, 15 minutes. And then I would think about the, the implications of those things on their own practice. And then maybe get a, a, a group of teachers together within a school to think about these things and how they relate to not only their own subject, um, but other subjects. Yeah, no, I'm building that as well by throwing into the mix the Learning Scientist website, which uh, if, if people are listening to this and they're like, no, I've never really looked at anything to do with cognitive psychology, then that's a great introduction to it and, and very easy to just get the simple principles across. So I do think that if teachers think a bit more about effective retrieval practice and low stakes testing, then what they can do is, is improve the quality of learning and, and people's memories of what has been learned. And so they can transfer and, and apply it later on in, in different contexts. Then that's extremely helpful, but also do it in such a way that you're not actually increasing stress for the pupils. So that, that anxiety and that sort of fear of getting poor marks, you know, that's what needs to go if we're going to make uh, motivation something that is, is much more positive and, and get that intrinsic learning that we were talking about earlier on. So low, stake, low stakes testing is very good. The thing that I'm personally going to work on this year, which is something I feel is, is overlooked in a lot of literature in, in cognitive psychology at the moment is, is varied practice. So people talk a lot about this, you know, spacing and interleaving, but we forget a bit about varying the practice and, and mixing it up within that. So uh, I think one of the reasons that I spent a bit of time looking at this um, and realized there's very little written about it Largely because whenever it's mentioned, it's always in relation to the infamous beanbag test, where uh, you know pupils were uh, a group of primary pupils had to practice throwing beanbags in, and one group was was tested on throwing it from three feet three away, and the other group were from two feet and four feet away, and then after a few weeks, when they all had to throw beanbags to this three foot target, it was the group that had done the very practice that were much more effective at it. Um, so that that's great. That's, it's good that we know that. But it does mean that anytime you look at it, it's virtually always about sport and PE teaching that very practice comes in. Almost all the examples come from that. So I'm thinking more about how can we be better at varying our practice if you're teaching English or chemistry or, or whatever else or in primary. 
Um, so I'm, I'm going to try and think a bit about that and write a bit about that this coming year. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. With both those examples, it's, it's that idea of of continuing to to read and reflect and, and hone your practice that's, that's actually quite exciting, I think, as you start a new year. There's never this sense that we've got it all sorted. And I think continuing what you both kind of resonate so obviously in the conversation is continuing to be intellectually curious about it, continuing to, to read, to learn to grow as professionals is is ultimately what's going to help us both find meaning and passion in what we do and help improve the outcome for young people. That's been really, really helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having us on, Jimmy. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. Take care. All the best. That was a fascinating discussion with two people clearly so passionate about research and education. Robin and Carl's mission to make research accessible and helpful for teachers in the classroom is a vital one. And spending an hour in their company, you can see what a difference they are making. Some things I'll be taking away. Like any profession, it's important in teaching we read around our craft and subject. That doesn't mean, though, that we need to spend hours digesting challenging journals and the most current and up-to-date research. There's so much out there that can help us to quickly make sense of the educational world. Books, blogs, and social media can be hugely positive stepping stones. Not accepting the newest edgy trends and questioning what will have the most impact for our students is a vital step in seeing teaching as an intellectual and thoughtful profession. In terms of directly applicable things in the classroom, I find the conversation and Robin and Carl's points about motivation very interesting. The idea that we can motivate, as Carl was saying, our students by allowing them to achieve academic success is what I'll be spending much more time on. For me, the thinking now needs to go into how I can scaffold students' writing and performance to give them this feeling that will encourage them to persevere through those desirable difficulties. The role of the individual teacher in enabling this motivation and successful behaviour management is also a really empowering one. The more passionate we are about what we are teaching, the more we harp on about the various wonders of our subject in a classroom, the more young people will be on our side and will be motivated. But it was interesting how clear Robin was in this. This needs to be balanced with a sense of our control and direction from the start of the year. And the points about Tom Bennett as the behaviour guru and the place to go to find more information on this is really important. Robin's transition in marking was also fascinating. Marking can become an almost obsessive action, marking endlessly for the sake of red pen action. And I think we all know those red pen warriors in our school. Dylan Williams' four quarters marking is one that I hope to try on more in the year to come. Just a reminder on that quotation. So he said, I think teachers should mark in detail 25% of what students do should skim another 25%. Students should then self-assess about 25%, with teachers monitoring the quality of that. And finally, peer assessment should be the other 25%. Carl's advice on students owning the process and becoming more reflective about feedback offered was a very helpful one, and one I'll be working hard to implement. Thank you again to Carl and Robin for coming on the show. Both have excellent blogs and you can follow them online at at C underscore Hendrick and at Robin underscore M-A-C-P. Their book is well worth purchasing 
and it's called What Does This Look Like in the Classroom? Next month, the show will be focused on the complex challenge of improving reading skills in our classrooms. I'm really looking forward to speaking to Diane and James Murphy, whose book Thinking Reading condenses their 50 years of experience working in schools into a clear vision for how to improve how we teach reading in secondary schools. And for primary school colleagues, I'm excited to have Aidan Severs, the blogging guru at thatboycanteach.com, who will be sharing his expertise in improving the teaching of reading in primary schools. Thank you very much for listening to this month's episode. I hope you find it interesting.